Oh, okay. Recording in progress. Got it. I think we've started. I don't know. Yes, there's, mm. there's more than three of us. So, yeah, we have started. I'm, I'm loving John's T-shirt, by the way. What's he got on today? I'm hoping it's Star Trek Deep Space oh. Nine. Yeah, it it's not. No it's, no, it's an Enterprise one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Do you them 10 points? Minus, minus a couple, JW. All right, so we've got... Uh, where's my... Oh, do you know what? Today, oh, what a long day. I've got a long day tomorrow. I've got to drive down to Derby. We'll be at Derby for 7 a.m. Oh, nice. How do we know yeah. people are in here again? There are... Those. Right, if you click... Yeah, we knew... Yeah, right, click uh, participants on the Zoom, and then you'll see there are 20, 21. It's climbing up, and then it pops open, and then you can see panelists, and then there's attendees. Oh, yeah, I can see there. it, yeah. And they're talking in the chat. Mr. Bickerton has already said, Good evening. Hi Tom, how you doing, buddy? Sean's there. James is there. Oh god, I really need to remember how this all works. Oh, there we go. Yeah, yeah, it's lots of little boxes, isn't it? Lots yeah. of little boxes. Okay, Q and A's. Participants got it. Got it. Yeah. There we go. <clears throat> right. Hi everyone. Um, give it a minute and. Wait for everyone who is going to be uh-huh. here to be here, and then we'll go yeah, for that. Yeah, that's cool. Okay, so how Tom, how Ben, Andy. Um, yeah, Sean says change chat to all panelists and attendees. John's there. Yeah, if you want to let everyone know, make sure your chat is to everyone and not just to the panelists if you want to talk to each other. And hello, David. Um, yeah, thanks for no worries, buddy. No worries. A drink first. It's uh, overdue, to be honest. Okay. We're going to do a couple more posts like with some of the other people that I rely on a lot. <clears throat> Mr. Holmes is in, I see. Hello, sir. I had some more requests for some good podcasts actually today. Yeah. And ones I think we can do pretty much good justice on as well. So, hmm. Hmm. right. Shall we proceed? Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Let's get on with this. Brilliant. Okay. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to these uh, this year's webinar series, I suppose. So we thought we'd start at the beginning, in the beginning, on the beginning, in the very first edition. So in today, we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the wine rules. Now, if everybody likes this and people watching on YouTube like this, then we may be tempted to do some summary ones on the second, third, fourth, mm. fifth, etc., depending on people's thirst for knowledge yeah. here and in the wonderful world of youtube and we can kind of highlight along the journey where the key changes shifted where the Mm -hmm. key of you know the key mentalities the key you know changes in direction of some of the some of it came in indeed i'm just going to check my computer actually works and my screen moves there we go okay it does work okay right so um it's called the history of wine rules although the first thing we need to start off is this is only going to be the first edition because uh, when this was first uh, researched, I was doing IET lectures uh, where we were kind of taking people on a journey all the way from the first to the 18th edition, which was being released. And the feedback was more people wanted to know more about the first. And I thought, OK, well, maybe one day we'll do something. So here we are. Um, first little key fact, because this isn't going to be a three hour webinar, and I'm sure Dave oh. will, as the operator of the question and answers, Dave can then just chuck some polls to see what people think. Um, 
First thing you need to know, there's been 49 printed editions of the rules and regulations published. How many do you own, John Ward? 28. So not all of them, but more than half mm. anyway. So mm. getting there. So Shame and disgrace upon you. So there you go. So John's got 28 of the 49. He's doing well. Um, and if anybody has any copies that he doesn't have, I'm sure he'll be willing to recycle them accordingly. So, yeah, first bit of information, 49 printed editions. But what we before we get into all the editions and all the rest of it, um, we need to go back to the very, very beginning. OK, and in the very beginning, 1847, to be to be clear, there was an act from Parliament called the Town Improvement Clauses Act. And that was that document on the left. And it was basically known as the Gas Act, because before electricery, we had street lighting, which is very common. And it was all done via gas. And so what they were trying to do was to set prices of gas, uh, resolve land disputes for all gas distribution and various other trying to clean up communities and all that back in 1847. But as is always the way, it's never good enough. Um, but that Gas Act does have some grounding in what we know today and we'll take you through where and how and why. But moving on from that date, uh, 17th of May, 1871, that bloke in the corner called Sir Charles William Siemens, everybody nowadays knows Siemens, they're mass producers of AFDDs, RCDs and large industrial commercial equipment and mm -hmm. they're massive, uh, they own Electrium brand and own Wilex. And I'm going to say, we're, we're a lot more familiar with their, as electricians, as their, their one of their brands down the line, Electrium through to Wilex and Bolex and Appleby. Appleby, yeah. And um, Crabtree. And Crabtree. So, uh, Sir Charles William Siemens, he was born in Germany, um, but he actually lived in London and died in England. Um, he was actually the very first president of uh, the Society of Telegraph Engineers, which we'll get onto in a minute. Um, but he basically founded the Society of Telegraph Engineers, which obviously later on, because maybe the telegraph engineers didn't know how to party, they got all the electricians in and it became telegraph engineers and electricians. But what this guy was famous for, um, please note the all expense spared light bulb, um, a place called uh, Gold, I can never, God Alming Dorming. Town in September 1881. It was the first town in the world to have a public electricity supply installed. Um, and it was a company called Calder and Barrett who installed it. And they used a Siemens AC alternator and dynamo, i.e. motor, which was powered by a water wheel at Westbrook Mill um, on the river, uh, river Way. Why? I can never pronounce that correctly. Um, there was a number of supply cables. A lot of them were laid into gutters. And there were several arc lights um, and 34 incandescent lights. So basically, floods caused a lot of problems. Um, and basically, people rebelled against this horrific electrical lighting. Um, and then in 1884, they went back to gas. So the very first mass application of electricity rejected by the masses, mm. uh, which is which is ironic. But, beyond belief. But, but again, back then, this was really just what alternative to lights and what other power use was there then? you know it wasn't <clears throat> so you know a lot of people probably didn't see the need for it yeah it's rich and famous i think it's fair to say mm. um obviously moving on um 1872 um the society of telegraph engineers turned up obviously so will um so will william charles siemens was the president the first initial president and then moving on in 1875 um i'm going to take us back to the law this document showed up which was called the Public Health Act. And that was purely designed to clean up streets and communities because mm. you can imagine back in them days when you went to the toilet, you just probably chucked the bucket out the window yeah. and 
it didn't keep communities healthy and clean and the government realized they had to do something about hygiene now if anybody wants a copy of any of this stuff here it's all available on the uk government website believe it or not legislation.gov.uk these documents are still available in pdf okay so they're not hidden away in a library anywhere these are available and as you can see it, it talked about execution of the act sanitary provisions etc now this document was really important in 1875 because it led to a further development and a further act. And that was in 1882, the Electric Lighting Clauses Act, which is which I want you to remember the date, 1882. Sound familiar? Yes, it does. So this is an act of parliament. OK, but let's just go back two years because two years before that document came out, the Society of Telegraph Engineers and Electricians got together. And what they did do in that year was on May the 11th, 1882, two years later, they produced the rules and regulations for the prevention of fire risks arising from electric lighting. Now, we know it as the first edition, because that's what the IET call it, but the title is so prevalent, it's mind-blowing, rules and regs. I'd like to probably know a little bit more about how people interpret the definition of rules and regs. Maybe, Dave, you can run a poll, what people think rules and regulations actually are and the difference between them um because to well, me regulations is laws well actually are... um a poll is kind of like a, a question yes or no kind of thing but i mean you yeah. guys in the chat just throw in what you think the difference is between rules and regulations and yep. we can read out some of your answers mm -hmm. and the most interesting part of the title because it is so relevant today prevention of fire risk still still relevant today 130 plus years later still relevant which is mind-blowing um so, yes, that was the first edition. That's what it looked like. That is a scan of the very first original. Um, and what happened in them days, I'll set the scene a little bit. Uh, back in the early days of the society, what they used to do was produce something called white papers. And it was a means and method of documenting technical uh, developments, engineering mindsets, thoughts, uh, research and analysis. And they would get together as part of the society and present these papers. Now, you can go online and down, um, not download, buy the, um, the journals of the entire Society of Telegraph mm. Engineers and Electricians, and you will see the early thoughts and debates on earthing and lighting and electrical safety, and you can see where all of the rules that we have nowadays, where they've come from. But this was the first copy. As you can see, it's not very clear. Um, it was basically a little fold-out paper that was handed out to the guys as they entered the uh, building which was not the IET in London. It's actually a different building in London at that time. And it was divided into four parts. The dynamo machine, the wires, lamps, danger to person. Dave, how many parts do we have in ours now? Well, well, seven and it's about to grow. Yeah, about to grow. So we're nearly doubling that nowadays. So a couple of bits before we start. There is a bit of a preamble. Um, John, do you want to start with the preamble? Yeah, we can. It's uh, in the beginning. There was a lot of fire and smoke coming out of the bottom. That's um, to add dramatic effects, sorry. Yeah. Um, these rules and regulations are drawn up not only for the guidance and instruction of those who have electric lighting apparatus installed on their premises, but for the reduction to a minimum of those risks of fire which are inherent to every system of artificial illumination. The, I'll do this one as well, yeah. The, Go on, yeah. Yeah, the chief dangers of every new application of electricity arise mainly from ignorance and inexperience on the part of those who supply and fit up the requisite plant. Mm. See, I like this because having ignorance and experience identifies that there's, there was probably a lack of 
education, training and all sorts at the beginning, you know, and a lot of the work was carried out by persons. I mean, if you're doing things for the first time, it's hard to gain experience anyway. Yeah. And this is the thing. This is the interesting thing. So somewhere in this mess, I actually have a printed copy of that first uh, set of white papers. Mm. Um, It's fascinating when you just dip in and sample the debate around what we now know was being questioned and thought about and assumed and people trying to come up with basically formulas to prove the theories, um, which is now what we take for granted. But yeah, that experience was being consciously developed. It wasn't available off the shelf. So the inherent dangers from electricity in these days was Mm. off the charts. And again, there's a big difference between uh, scientists, you know, getting dynamos, creating electricity, doing some small scale transmission, and then trying to distribute that up, up to a larger scale. Indeed. You know, there's going to be lots of learning, and hence the fire risk was probably in reflection of a lot of experience to that risk. It is one of the chief fire risks, other than these two blokes here getting trapped in machines and falling <laughs> down holes. Yeah. And the thing at the time was that, of course, there was no national grid, so you didn't just call up somebody and get electricity installed. You wanted Indeed. electricity, you had to get your own equipment put in, your own generators, your own everything, because there was no one person to buy it from. It was literally do it yourself. And if you didn't do it yourself, you got absolutely nothing because there was no other choice. And this is why this preamble continues. Would you like to eloquently continue, John? Yeah. The difficulties that beset the electrical engineer are chiefly internal and invisible, and they can only be effectually guarded against by testing or probing with electric currents. They depend chiefly on leakage, undue resistance in the conductor and bad joints, which lead to waste of energy and the production of heat. So hang on a minute. Mm. So in the preamble to the regs book, we have got the words internal invisible, which talks about the internal learning struggle to me, but then it talks about testing, probing, leakage, resistance, joints, waste of energy, energy efficiency, and heat, thermal effects in the preamble to the very first book. So in these early days of experiments, I remember, Dave, you remember when the 18th edition was coming out and there was all the, oh, we're going to have an energy efficiency section eight. And everyone was like, no, we can't do that. Well, they, they said it had nothing to do with BS7671. Energy it's efficiency had nothing to do with the fundamental principles. But it's built on this. It's built in the first edition. Yeah. Waste has always been a consideration, which is mind blowing. Right. Let's just see why my computer's froze. There we go. Right. Carry on, boys. Read away. Can we do this one? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so these defects can only be detected by measuring by means of special apparatus. The currents that are either ordinarily or for the purpose of testing pass through the circuit. Bare or exposed conductors should always be within visual inspection since the accidental falling onto or the thoughtless placing of other conducting bodies upon such conductors might lead to short-circuiting or the sudden generation of heat due to a powerful current of electricity in conductors that are too small to carry it. So short circuiting. Short circuiting. Powerful current, sizing of conductors. Again, visual inspection. It's, yeah, this, it's just one big warning, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. I just love the, I just love that you know the, I, I love the words chiefly and things like that. I'm I'm gonna write a book just so I can use these words. Let's go on to the next one. Go on, Dave. All right. It cannot be too strongly urged that amongst the chief enemies to be guarded against are the presence of moisture, 
and use of earth as part of the circuit. That in itself is mind-blowing. The fact that we considered earth as an enemy is, is amazing because they, in that days, the context was if your circuit comes to earth, it's a hazard to the circuit, whereas we now use earth as a protective measure. But um, a little, little bit of history for you, and I've got some of the white papers on it. There is lots of fascinating debates on Earth. And the reason that little image is in there is because when people were looking at Earthing, they were assuming the electromagnetic fields of the Earth would cause chaos with the development of energy and electricity and how it's controlled and managed. And there's some absolutely mental debates on electromagnetic fields of the Earth because they genuinely, some people are of the view of you can take the energy from the Earth. Mm. Uh, which, you know, as you're developing an understanding, it's these white papers are a minefield. I got lost in them for months while I was going through it. Um, they literally, one paper I remember talked about gravity in relation to the earth and the positive and negative flow of electricity, which, which again, I still remember, and it was months ago I read it. But um, yeah, so earth is the enemy, apparently, according to the first edition. Might be probably one of the few errors, but yeah, I can see where they were getting. Well, it probably wasn't an error at the time because, again, it wasn't, if you had an extra installation in your house, that was it. And it wasn't connected to anyone else's house or down the street. And there was no grid, obviously. So, uh, well, yeah, there was, probably wasn't a transformer heart 200 yards down with a big yeah. electrode in the ground, you know, indeed. But <laughs> one of my favorite bits in the book, and this is not us making this up. This is, this is literally in the book. This is the last part of the preamble. And it says the chief element of safety, which is brilliant. We love talking safety mm -hmm. is the employment of skilled and experienced electricians, to supervise the work. Interesting how they're supervising in the first edition, not necessarily yeah. doing. Now, where they got the skilled and experience from in 1882, God only knows. But it's a really interesting element that was in the first edition. There was a requirements for skills and experience, which we know forms part of competence. Mm. And that was in the first edition. Um, be interesting to see if there's any statistics of people working with electricity that caused harm and did they ever go to jail? I, I haven't found any information on that yet, to be honest with you, but there are literally hundreds and hundreds of papers to go through. Right. So moving on, as we know, that's the scan of the original. Um, a few years later, the Society of Telegraph Engineers and of Electricians, they republished it in a three-page reprint, which is the one on the screen, which hopefully everybody can read because it's nice and clean and tidied up. And yeah. So everything we're doing in here today is literally just going through uh these regulations there are 21 of them and you can actually see quite easily here the layout of the four parts you've got one dynamo machine two wires you can see it all laid out here yep. as to how the parts were done do you want me to go through some of these answers for difference between rules and regulations yeah, why now? not while we're seeing we yeah, yeah, going go through? Through. yeah all right so um david says rules are the guidelines and regulations are the legal acceptance of these guidelines that's sir uh, david graham Mr. Bickerton says, rules are guidelines and instructions for doing something right. Paul says, Very good. regs are you must, shall. Rules are you can, could. Oh, I like that one, Paul. Yeah. Sean, rules, individual guidance, regulations, a collection of the above. All the other way around, smiley face. Okay. Uh, another one from Tom. Regulations are supplementary to acts. They link to existing acts and they're designed to aid a person to apply principles of the primary act. Essentially, they are formal guidelines and breaching them is not necessarily enforceable in court. 
And David Betteridge says, laws are also rules that govern everyone equally. Regulations only affect those who deal directly with the agency who is enforcing them. Lots of good answers there. Yeah, really good answers. Can we screenshot all them? They're excellent answers. Yeah, they'll be in the comments. Uh, oh, hang, hang on. on. Lawrence has said power Lawrence of Google. Lawrence Power of Google. Uh, Lawrence, uh, definition of regulation, a rule or directive made and maintained by an authority such as regulation footwear. Uh, Sean says regulations are also said to be maintained by an authority. Okay, and then there's the Google one here. Thanks, Lawrence. Uh, definition of a rule, one of a set of explicit or understood regulations or principles governing conduct or procedure within a particular area or activity. And then Mark for rules says information that must be followed to ensure a safe outcome. Regulations are information to help operators achieve said safe outcome. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, right. Great responses. They are excellent responses. Thank you, everyone. Well, what we'll do is we'll move on. As we've just shown you, there are four parts. The dynamo machine, the wires, lamps, and danger to persons. And remember, as John has already said, this is way back before the grid. This is where you would have to create your own generation source in your large back garden or something, and you'd have to find a way to correctly erect it. And this is, again, the why Earth was an enemy. Because you had your own generation source. You didn't utilize the abundance of Earth because you had your own generation source. You know? Yeah. So keeping Absolutely. it away from Earth would have been a good idea. Indeed. Right. Let's begin. Part so one. this is an image of one of those large, luxurious, expensive dynamo machines. So in 1882, this is what a dynamo machine was. Most modern youngsters, if they're watching us on YouTube, will know this is a dynamo machine as well. He's a magician. Just trying to put some context. Um, so, yeah, Dynamo Machine, that was part one. The first six regulations cover it. Hey, I find it funny. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> so let's take you through these regs. There is no City and Guild exam on this, although I think everyone would pass it with flying colours. I'd love to see Dave do 40 or 80 questions on these regulations. Um, rule one, the Dynamo Machine, or motor as we would lovingly call it today, should mm -hmm. be fixed in a dry place. I mean, it seems short and vague, but it's pretty much to the point, isn't it? It is. Especially for, especially for people new to the idea of generating or creating their own electrical supply. You know? Well, that tells me don't go putting it in an outbuilding with no heating and no insulation and where it's damp and there's a leaky roof. That's, that's what it tells me. But people could misinterpret that. You're right. It could be vague. So let's mm -hmm. go to regulation two. It should not be exposed to dust or flyings. Mm. I don't. I have no idea what flying actually means. I'm assuming it's flying material or debris. I'm assuming it's flying material of some 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 respect. Yes. Yeah, but as you can see, you've got you can, a big moving thing, haven't you? Yeah, and and what you can see is this is a slowly slowly building up to the whole. What you'll see in this is lots of principles that we now know as IP, external influences. Yeah. But, so Sean is suggesting this might be one of the first ever IP racing requirements. Yeah, there you go. Sean Probably. knows what he's doing. Um, number three, and I, my, one of my favourites, it should be kept perfectly clean and its bearings well-oiled. It's another one of those words I love, this perfectly. Can we all, when you know, Amendment 3 comes out of the 19th edition, all go online and comment and say, I want perfectly put in... Chiefly and perfectly. Into, yes. Chiefly and perfectly. Enemy danger, chiefly perfectly. Let's get them back into the regs. Let's do a campaign. All 25 of us can sign it and they'll 
probably ignore it, but there you go. So, yeah, it, it's real common sense. It's very clear, to be perfectly frank. Look after your machine. Maintain it. Service it. And if you still don't understand that, the insulation of its coils and conductors should be perfect. I mean, this is yeah. like just please don't mess up these motors because evidently they could go bang and not be great. But our word perfect is in there again. So first addition to me, perfect. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Paul says probably referring to things like dusts that are in flour mills and dust factories. Yeah, most likely, you know, yeah. these would have been used to as, as the beginning points of industry at that point. Um, yeah. So yeah, it would basically mean put it in its own separate room in your flour factory or, or whatever yes. you've got. Yep, don't have loads of flour and rubbish and wood <clears> and logs and stuff sitting up next to it while it's got moving parts getting really hot and a recipe for a fire. But in them days, probably nobody knew what the fire triangle was because it probably didn't exist. Mm. Um, uh, it is better when practicable. First use of the word practicable I've seen in any of these documents I've read to fix it on an insulating bed. Now, insulating term is quite interesting in this because what we know as insulation and insulating is slightly different as we'll go through you'll see exactly what i mean but we'll come on to some further regs for that <coughs> it almost has a double meaning yeah um but yeah fix it on an insulating bed that's fair enough uh, and then again one of the greatest regs in here all conductors in the dynamo room should be firmly supported fixings well insulated fantastic conveniently arranged for inspection oh my god i'm in love with it and marked or numbered hello yeah. And we wonder why these old installations are damn good. Now, I don't know why that is littered across 7671 with vagueness. That's really clear. I don't know what everyone in the chat thinks, but. So, I mean, look, um, Tom's got uh, this is about obviously uh, external influences, cleaners to pay attention when they slap chemicals and cleaning supplies and switch rooms and stuff. Uh, so, yeah, need to consider all these other external factors. Um, I like with this, this, I um, mean, yeah, you've got here firmly supported. So, you know, we, we would go down the avenue of suitable erection methods and complicate this significantly these days. Yes. But conveniently arranged, you know, for inspection. I don't well, know if today we, I don't know if we today don't. we make some assumptions on this. No. Well, the best example for this is in a fuse board, um, like mine or Sean's, which are perfect in every way. <laughs> Um, we conveniently arrange them and we number them. Well, Sean doesn't, I do, but hmm. um, so Sean, you're non-compliant with the first edition. No offense. Um, so, so Mr. Brewton's pretty, pretty much spot on here. He's saying, okay, well, is this what we need to consider today with maintainability? Hmm. Yeah, we can flip maintainability to clearly point right at this to hmm. say that we need to safely and effectively be able to maintain the system in the future. So, some people are going to hate me saying this, but good comms installers will use a cable comb so that they can arrange all of their looms very, very well so everything falls exactly into place. Um, and it's an art form. It really is an art form, that, and it's a skill that's very rarely acquired nowadays because once you put a bit, something in a bit of trunky and it gets tied in knots and all interwoven, and, mm -hmm. and I do remember some people having OCDs about hand-laying cables into trunking. And each, the live neutral and earth of conductors, I don't know if anyone did this online, um, but... I remember people bunching the circuit together and laying in the trunking mm. and then, and that they would all be grouped together as circuits. So you could just pull one out really easy and they're not all interwoven. Of course it took too long. So they stopped doing it, but yeah, unfortunately these days it's a case of once the lidding is on, then they look at the 
you know, the the, uh, the the workmanship of the wiring system. Don't necessarily look at the ability to go back in and work and maintain on it. Yeah, I won't accept any excuses from Sean in the chat, by the way. <laughs> Let's, uh, John, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, like from the very beginning, it was put in there for, like Bob Rosa says, maintainability. So the whole concept was that what you're putting in today, next week or next month or next year, you can still go in there and make changes or see if it's still in good condition. It was all thought about from the actual outset. Mm. Whereas, unfortunately, these days, a lot of it is just sling it in and who cares what happens after that because you're <laughs> obviously gone down the road and done something else. So, But it's crazy. Yeah. Like, even today when I deliver 18th edition training, I have to sometimes over explain the importance of maintainability at the design stage these these you know things like the uh the two three nine sixes and stuff we can improve these qualifications with a dedicated consideration of maintainability um it seems to be something that we kind of look at but we don't really program and think in but it's right here at the very first you know the very very first edition here yeah, and it should be in there because i mean electrical installations aren't magic they don't just last forever despite what some homeowners <laughs> might imagine they do need to be looked at and checked and inspected and even repaired and altered from time to time so if it was all done from the start it'd make yeah. it a lot easier for everybody and it'd make it cheaper as well okay part, who's doing number two part two okay I, I can read some part two well that's just an image that was in the book by the way guys mm-hmm. okay seven. so number seven every switch or commutator used for turning the current on or off should be constructed so that when it is moved and left to itself, it cannot permit of a permanent arc or heating, and its stand should be made of slate, stoneware, or some other incombustible substances. I love this reg because mm. it's almost a product standard. Yeah. Because when you're throwing a switch, you can't allow arcing, which is great. And more, more importantly, the stand of equipment, because electrical equipment was so, it got quite hot, um, when we were talking about insulating or isolating, you you had to use a non-combustible s- surface right. to fix to so that you could effectively insulate or isolate the mm. equipment from a combustible surface, which is in, was it 421 or whatever and all it is nowadays. So it's still yeah. very relevant. We were talking about this on our podcast the other day for thatched houses. This, mm. is, this is the same. This is yeah. section 42, basically. <laughs> this is, yeah. But even even today, I mean, I mean, we talk a lot about things like the categories of switch gears and testers and showing that they can work with regards to the arcs that can occur in the operation of these devices. But we're only really talking a bit now about things like the heating effects of collected devices, you know, the actual, you know, the ability, the duration of any combined numbers of devices. Because back then, obviously, devices were, you know, often in, in, in a singular term. But these days, we have so many devices all combined together. And we're still not we're still not often thinking about the accumulative heating effect, but even here at the very first, you know, the heating effect of these devices had to be considered as well. Yeah, and slate. When it says slate, that was actually a very common material because the, like, yeah, the type of switches we're talking about here were what's called live front switchboard. So it was literally a big slab of slate, <laughs> holes drilled through it, and then those big brass posts came out, and they had a big handle on the front. And most of the parts were live. So if you didn't know what you're doing and you grabbed all the wrong bits, then you were dead, unfortunately. Yeah. And, uh, it was very important to use the uh, properly insulated handle only. And obviously it would, what we would now call by uh, skilled and instructed persons only. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom, Tom, Tom Bickerton says, do you remember switches with mercury tubes inside? Yes, I do. Yeah. 
they were in a lot of hospitals to prevent arcs when you were switching in areas where there were gases and stuff. When I was an apprentice, I worked in a hospital for a while and we were stripping out all the mercury bottles and selling them to the scrapyards. Yeah. We didn't know at the time, obviously they were a kosh and chip hazard and all that. But mm. um, one interesting thing as well, just before we move on to the next one, arc. First ever mention of the word arc in the regulations mm-hmm. in the first edition. And yet when the 18th came out, people used to say, oh, arc fault detection. We've never heard that before in the regs. It was in the 17th edition of Amendment 1, and the word arc appears in the first edition. And one of the things that we're finding with this is a lot of stuff that people are saying is new. None of it's new. It's been in the regs in some form or another from day dot. Yeah, I think I think so, I, I'll just add to this. We've discussed this a number of times when we've done like podcasts and we've kind of talked before and after, and we may have even mentioned it on a couple. But the life of the the late life of the 15th and the life of the 16th edition, which many of today's electricians were kind of grown on, yep. is heavily, heavily, heavily focused on protecting against electric shock. You know, um, we brought in over voltage and a lot of people started looking at each other funny. You know, thermal effects have always been there, but a lot of the study, a lot of the intent has been about protection against electric shock. We've played with earthing arrangements, submetry bonding, cage bonding, RCDs introduction, all about electric shock. But the whole consideration of heat thermal effects has never, it's ne- you know, it's not a new addition. It's always been here. Our consideration has always been here. It's just a lot of our attention has been on something else, I think. There's also, there's only so much time and almost so much you can absorb as well. True. Number eight, mate. <clears throat> Number eight. Okay, there should be in connection with the main circuit, a safety fuse constructed of easily fusible metal, which would be melted if the current attained any undue magnitude and would thus cause the circuit to be broken. No idea what that's about. <laughs> That one kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? Well, yeah. First ever mention of fuses. Mm. Basically, protect the circuit. Nothing new. I love the way they, you know, you can see they're experimenting. Have have some sort of device that melts away in the event of overcurrent. It's it's quite nice. And it's very simple English as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's, 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 the, it's the original engineering way of protection, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. Again, <clears throat> this goes... This is very heavy industry, heavy, heavy, heavy uh, engineering about fire protection. The utilization of the systems isn't in any way as complex as we get to maybe later on into the into the additions, catching up to where John's got, um, where we start to really worry about other types of protection. But a lot of them were there still. I agree. There uh, we go. Number nine. Okay, number nine. Every part of the circuit should be so determined that the gauge of wire to be used is properly proportioned to the currents it will have to carry and changes of circuit from a larger to a smaller conductor should be sufficiently protected with suitable safety fuses so that no portion of the conductor should ever be allowed to attain a temperature that is in excess of 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Is that in modern money again? It's near enough yeah. 70, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah, pretty... 60-something, yeah. It's, 66. Oh, yeah. Very near 70. So almost the same as we've got today. Pretty much. That's basic principles, though, isn't it now, really? Make sure your wire's adequately sized. Current carrying capacity. Mm, but it's just aiming at the temperature. It's not too mm. much about insulation integrity here. It's just about making sure the temperature of the conductor mm. doesn't go above a value. Well, they were learning, weren't they? So, yeah. God bless them. And they managed to fit everything in 21 it, regs in a note. But it kind of shows you where maybe insulation was introduced to accommodate that. This insulated conductor, right, 
well, it's been designed or it's, it's, its legacy says it runs at 70 degrees or 150 Fahrenheit. And so they obviously develop insulation materials and tolerances to kind of maintain the status quo in that concept. So this is the note that follows these. Really relevant, okay. Dave. All right. These fuses are the very essence of safety. They should always be enclosed in incombustible cases. Even if wires become perceptibly warmed by the ordinary current, it is a proof that they are too small for the work that they have to do and that they ought to be replaced by larger wires. Could you argue the same about the fuses? You know what I'm thinking. <clears throat> we've all gone into boards at some point in our lives and used the back of our finger and we've touched the breakers and gone, hmm, they're a bit warm. <coughs> yeah. I mean... Is the breakers working too hard? Do As you've said in your video, and we've found out from most of the manufacturing now, the, the thermal effects of not spacing breakers, the thermal dissipation required needed, the grouping factors of breakers that got buried for so also, long. Also, let's tie this to what it said at the very beginning about energy efficiency, and let's look at what 60364-81 wants to do, which is allow us to take our cables from an operating temperature of 70 degrees. It wants us to bring those temperatures down by replacing them with larger wires. You know, it's basically coming full circle. Four mil radials, mate. Four you know? mil radials, so, it's only a matter of time. <laughs> so when we have this coming in, we're going, oh, this is nothing to do with the regs. It says here in the note that we may need to consider if the conductors run warm increase to increase them so they run cooler. Yeah. And yeah. as Tom said, DNO old fuses and supply cables under the ground, mm. perfectly well cooled, and they can carry a hell of a lot more than they're rated for. Yeah. And then they come up into that pitch cutout, and it leaks everywhere because it's just it can't can't take it. <laughs> so it's an interest. It's an interesting note. It didn't become a rule or regulation. It was a note. Yeah. So there's lots of advice in this document, which I quite like. Mm. Okay, uh, number ten. Under ordinary circumstances, complete metallic circuits should be used and the employment of gas or water pipes as conductors for the purpose of completing a circuit should in no case be allowed. Can you believe somebody actually thought about doing that even to write a rule or reg for that? Well, oh my well, God, yeah, they must have I mean, killed a lot of waterboard workers and gasboard yeah, workers. They probably somebody tried must it. Have done it. Yeah, somebody must have actually done this. And then obviously there must have been a load of injuries, mm. deaths and whatever. To have because for this to occur, somebody must have tried it a lot of times. Mm. But again, I mean, we're talking we're talking now in modern issues. We've got diverted neutral currents where we may have some copper pipeworks being used as a return neutral current. Um, maybe uh, we could even return to this and say, oh no, always since then it's been a bad idea to use gas or water pipes to run current through. You know. Well, if Earth is the enemy of the circuit and we earth and bond all the water and gas pipes in these days, it would have been almost heresy. Would have been, yeah, because you're, you like you're introducing the potential it's saying we shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah, I know. Doesn't this blow your brain just on what we know about earthing and bonding? Um, but yeah, no, so um, don't don't use your um, gas or water pipes as um, yeah, lives or neutrals. I think that's the lesson there. Number 11, Dave. Okay. Where bare wire out of doors rests on insulating supports, it should be coated with insulating material, such as India rubber tape or tube, for at least two feet on each side of its support. Yeah. So, so a bit of arm's reach, maybe, or something? Well, 
I think me and John have got old books that kind of show a lot of installations mm. in houses where you would have wires run and they'd have like wooden blocks of porcelain mm. and where, where it's on the porcelain, it would be insulated so you could tie it correctly and fix it, but then it might be bare for another length of run effectively. Mm. Um, that's part of the experimentation basically. So Indian rubber or tube for at least two feet on each side of the support. So, and that leads into number 12 as well, perfectly into number 12. Yeah. Bare wires passing over the tops of houses should never be less than seven feet clear of any part of the roof. And they should invariably be high enough when crossing through uh, thoroughfares to allow fire escapes to pass under them. How many TT installations I've seen where you've got the overhead wires that are literally sagging, just kissing it, yeah. and they're just kissing the rooftop tiles. And then eventually there's an instant and they come and they just sleeve it with like this almost plastic, horrible thing. Rather than fix the problem or try and tension the wires, they just sleeve it. Mm. And I know that happens quite a bit in Essex way and the sticks, but. Yeah, there's loads around here as well. I mean, you get them half the time. They're not even over the roof. They're just attached to the gutter and it just strung across the road to a pole on the other side. So it's, it's actually below the roof level barely enough high enough to actually uh, keep a clearance underneath so moving on yep okay it is most essential that the joints should be electrically and mechanically perfect one of the best joints is that shown in the annex sketches the joint is whipped around with small wire and the whole mechanically united by solder and that's an image of it mm. it'd be interesting to see that done nowadays with stranded cables whether you know people could do that it's funny i you i see it's like skill. i see some of these craft channels and all this stuff do terminations not maybe exactly like this but not too dissimilar and everyone will moan about it and saying it's but you know if it's done right it's done the way it was originally done before it does you know just raise the question of to how its integrity would be today hmm. you know yeah do you know what would you rather have one of them or away go <laughs> or Tom says uh, NASA did that. They used that on their space shuttles. Cool. There you go. I think I, I'd like to see that. Do you want to show you? Yeah, I would. I, I would like to see that done. Yeah. Be interesting if we could find any videos on that being done like that. <clears throat> I've got a document with a load of those shown in it. That's how you actually do them and put them together. Mm. Sounds like a, a challenge for JW to recreate it. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, the position of wires when underground should be efficiently indicated and they should be laid down so as to easily be inspected and repaired. Sorry. Yeah. So that's just buried services, isn't it, basically? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's when underground should be indicated. Yeah. I mean, I, I, like, I like the idea of um, assuming that even today services underground should be easily indicated, but... It's not always the case. Yeah, I don't know how you'd easily inspect something that's buried underground, um, to be honest with you. But repaired, yes. I mean, flagstones, stuff like that. In the olden days when they did, um, I've got I've got that guide, the History of Cables book behind me. And mm. when they did the old pilk feeders around London, uh, they effectively had them in concrete coffins with lids so that when you buried it and backfilled and put all the roads over it, once you dug the road up, you could lift that chamber and find that cable easily to inspect and repair it if you needed to. Um, but that was one of the, the larger ones, which were more valuable, and they didn't want, obviously, the movement of the road over time to destroy it. Smaller ones, yeah, they just put them where they want, really. Yeah. Right. Mr. JW, can you take 15 onwards? 
all wires used for indoor purposes should be efficiently insulated. So no bits of bare wire hanging around your living room. Mm. It's about as simple as it gets, really, isn't it? Yeah. It's outdoor, you can go bare, but when you have a support, it needs to be insulated. When it's inside the house, insulate them or effectively mm -hmm. insulated. It sounds like common sense, but of course, at the time, nobody knew. So no. No, henceforth, their, their rules and regulations. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> nobody knew how to kind of live amongst electrical systems back then. It's, and, and this is a long explanation. Go for it, John. Yeah. So when these wires pass through roofs, walls, floors, or partitions, or where they cross or allow to touch metallic masses like iron girders or pipes, they should be thoroughly protected from abrasion with each other or with the metallic masses by suitable additional covering and where they're liable to abrasion from any cause or to the depredations of rats or mice, they should be efficiently encased in some hard material. The position of wires when underground should be efficiently indicated and they should be laid down so as to be easily inspected and repaired. This is where I'm going to get trolled for saying this, but this is why when I wire in any domestic property, I enclose in conduit. When I go through a wall, I enclose in conduit. If I do anything in an industrial commercial environment, I enclose in a conduit system. In my house, obviously, I've used plastic because I'm more protecting against abrasion and also ensuring that that big 20 mil hole I've drilled, rather than filling it with some goo, it's actually rigid and strong and I don't get any cracks or anything else. But yeah, this is really basic stuff. Protect it's basic and it's, it's simple, you know, it's, it's simply explained. Um, and, you know, you have, you have it's, <clears throat> it's a simple instruction of the outcome of what you do without telling you specifically how it should be done, which is great. But as long, you know, as long as you have the, you know, many, many options as ones that you've just described with your conduits going through the wall, you know, that achieves passing cables through walls and protecting them from abrasion. Yeah, you know? I got a lot, I got a lot of stick for that, but I don't mind you, getting a lot of stick. You did because a, a lot of people assume that the gray on a twin and earth apparently is perishable. You know, some people do assume that because you see them run cables through voids. I mean, you run cables through joists, through through masonry. It's sharp and it's it's firm. If you pull cables through and then you don't, you know, pull a loop through, if you just drag it through, you're going to damage that cable. You've got to feed the rats and mice with something. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Give them a chance. Uh, going back to one, one uh, Tom has said, period properties, you can see the lead cloth cables are laid. 60s tower blocks use galvanized conduit wiring systems as well to approach similar. I, I loved, I did some council tower blocks and it was all conduit buried in the walls and it was artwork. Uh, Imperial, mm -hmm. so it's a bit of a pain in the backside of modern cables to rewire it. But yeah. It's a question. It's, it. a, it's a question from Paul. Am I right in thinking that when wiring houses, Victorian engineers would use rebated skirting and lay the wires in individual channels? I don't know about the skirting, but there was definitely a like a trunking system which was wooden, and it mm. had it was a, a piece, and it had individual slots in the top. Slots in there, didn't it? I, don't, I do. Know, I do remember. Yeah, so David says there it's um, wooden trunking, so that was definitely a thing, and it mm. would have been single insulated conductors in the individual slots in the top of it again, keeping them all nice and neat and tidy and in the same alignment. So Victorian stuff, yeah, I think the cables, a lot of them are either clip direct put in a wooden boxing. I know in older commercial stuff, I've, I've ripped out box trunking, wooden box trunking, trunking oak from railway stations that used to carry the original, original VIR station wiring from when they were built over 100 years ago and first illuminated. But um, we do have a video on the E5 Instagram, which was, I think, 1920s, 1930s, of the cable man delivering the lead twin. 
and it shows mm. the electrician installing the lead twin clipped to the light and up to the socket. Um, and in, and I've been in houses where I've gone to like put sockets and do chasing and stuff. And I've seen bumps in the wallpaper, which look like maybe some sort of architectural groove. And when you actually strip it back to do your chasing, yeah. it's a lead twin that's been there and wallpapered over four or five times. So I have seen that, but yeah, surface, uh, we just go with capping now, unfortunately. Everything's just sling a bit of capping in or oval and I don't know. Um, not for me, but hey, mm. if individuals do that, that's down to them, but not for me, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to make the next bloke's life better. That's my view on it, because I may be the next bloke. Um, next one, John. Right, uh, number 17. Where wires are put out of sight, as beneath flooring, they should be thoroughly protected from mechanical injury, and their position should be indicated. Yes. Again, yeah, um, sensible regs. More sensible, and I'd like to expand this. It says place out of sight as beneath flooring. I mean, you could even consider like bury cables in the wall. You know, it's out mm. of sight. Yeah, that's just an example. When you think about even today with the zones, we have we have so many posts all the time about oh, are we in zones? Are we out of zones? The zones are there, but many times we don't hand that indication or that information to the consumer to the person who's going to utilize the electrical installation. We as electricians have known that the regulations, we've said, oh, we've got 150 mil, 150 mil vertical, horizontal. But unless we give that information as an indication, photo, drawing, or whatever, to the people who are going to utilize the electrical system, they can't utilize it safely. And even back then, it says any cables that are out of sight, such as beneath flooring, you know, they need to have protection, but they should also have their positions indicated. So, so I remember working in a church in West London and attached to that church was a flat for the vicar to live in. Hmm. And I remember we were rewiring that place. And when we went in and we started taking up the floorboards and I've, I've seen it in about three or four properties, we would open up the floor and see what can only be described as a work of art under the floor with a conduit system linked to central junctions around the house where you would have all the conduits. And I mean, these things were formed immaculately and the, not, the joists notched immaculately. Um, and we were sitting there just admiring and going, we've got to rip all this out. I know. And what we were putting in was just to no way or level uh, of a qualitative nature like that. And this, this is the sort of stuff we had, that required we, it. We had the same with the Stewart's house at Ascot Racecourse. I mean, the wiring systems were, in, you know, I've, there were obviously some additions over time but when it finally needed an overhaul some of the stuff we ripped out it was really it is it is it it's admirable to look at before you then just yanked it out and it was quite a waste yeah you can see where time and cost and money and speed mm-hmm. has replaced that workmanlike perfect uh, terminology that's used in this it's become a this is a nice thing you you have to do it perfectly to just get it in and get on to the next job. Um, and and this, I've got a bit of a nostalgia for this sort of stuff. Yeah, I have. And this is why, I mean, the word perfectly you just said, I mean, how could they even squeeze that in today's industry? Mm. Yeah. You know? It would cause uproar. It would. It would cause uproar. And of course, at the time, if you wanted electricity, you had to be rich because all of this would have been horrendously expensive. So 99% of ordinary people would not have been able to afford this. So, of course, if all the money's there, then you could probably actually spend it and actually take mm. the time to do a decent job 
Yeah, you probably took your time because there probably wasn't a lot of work going for the number of people for the number of people in the area. Yeah. So this is a note, and we've got the value of frequently testing the wires. It cannot be too strongly urged. It is an operation skill in which is easily acquired and applied. The escape of electricity cannot be detected by the sense of smell, as can gas, but it can be detected by apparatus far more certain and delicate. Leakage not only means waste, but in the presence of moisture, it means destruction of the conductor and its insulating covering by electric action. I love that. I want to get a sign made with that. There's so much information in here. So mm. it's well, how many times have we got inspection and testing and in this first edition? Because that's at least <coughs> the second time testing is mentioned. So you've got testing. It talks about skills. It, mm. I don't know if it's easily acquired and applied. I know maybe they were high hopes back, themselves. Back, back then, maybe. Maybe. Um, the escape of electricity cannot be detected. There's a dig at the gas board straight away. Mm. Um, but it can be detected by apparatus. So it's talking about test kit, equipment, monitoring equipment, indicating equipment. Leakage means waste. Energy efficiency, again. Mm -hmm. Again, yeah. Uh, presence of moisture, external influence. Mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing how this transposes in 130-odd years. And, yeah, there's just something very nice about that. I, I, I'm a big fan of these notes. I think today we've just got so many regulations that the message at the end, or the, these, these, these little regulations are a big summary of the outcome, and that is lost in so many regulations now. I agree. So let's move on to lamps. Lamps. Mr. JW, you can continue. Yep. Lamps. And bearing in mind, lamps was pretty much the only use for electricity at the time because mm -hmm. there wasn't yeah. obviously much of the else to do, to do with it. So number 18, art lamps should always be guarded by proper lanterns to prevent danger from falling incandescent pieces of carbon and from ascending sparks. Their globes should be protected with wire netting. Mm -hmm. That's fairly evident. When I was a kid, my granny had uh, an old lamp, and over time that would eventually just become very brittle and fall down onto the uh, sideboard that it was on. Um, yeah, I think it's warning about lighting because it's, you know, it's about electric lighting, this first edition. It was protecting against the effects of electric lighting. So moving on. Moving on. So number 19, the lanterns at all parts which are to be handled should be insulated from the circuit. So you're not grabbing hold of live parts. Don't kill anybody. So again, almost, almost the first adoption of a product standard for lighting there. Insulate the equipment. Do not kill anybody. Um, simple, effective, stands out a mile. I mean, everybody watching this, hopefully you're sitting here going, God, this is, yeah. This just smacks of simple. Let's go to the last bit. Part four, danger to persons. Yeah, danger to persons. John? Yeah, so number 20. To secure persons from danger inside buildings, it's essential so to arrange the conductors and fittings that no one can be exposed to the shocks of alternating currents exceeding 60 volts, and there should be never a difference potential of more than 200 volts between any two points in the same room. I'd love to know where they got this from. I am trying to find where this came from in those white papers, but there are thousands. I'd love to know where they got 60 volts from. Obviously, so this is obviously before we had any network, any harmonised value of voltage and mm -hmm. potential differences. <clears throat> but there was something that made them come up with these numbers for everyone's own independent generation. Yes. You know? 
there was something that did that and uh yeah we need to dig for that yeah we will i will continue looking i think it's an important one um and also by the way these dynamo machines didn't necessarily give you a consistent 240 230 volts they were a little bit lower in them days otherwise they probably would have failed miserably mm. right next one john if the difference in potential within any house exceeds 200 volts, whether the source electricity is to be external or internal, the house should be provided with outside with a switch, so arranged that the supply of electricity can be at once cut off. Hmm. So this does suggest anyone approaching the property from outside can hit a switch to remove the source if it's greater than 200 volts inside. Yeah, and this is pretty much going down the route of a fireman yeah, switch. Yeah, a fireman isn't switch, isn't it? Yeah. yeah which we don't have anymore. The interesting to see when we go into the world of prosumer. Um, it's, this... it's a good point you're saying there, Paul, because when we do come to the idea of prosumerism, DC arrays and stuff outside, there's going to be a need for some level of isolation for firefighters, definitely. And then that's basically <clears throat> it. That's the last part of it. Um, Order of the Council, FH Webb, who was the secretary, number four, the Sanctuary Westminster, um, June 21st, 1882. And that is basically our whistle-stop tour through the first edition of the Wiring Rigs. I'll leave the um, copy on the screen. Um, yes. And if anybody's got any questions or anything like that. Uh, there's then, a couple uh, have come through here. Let me uh, just... Uh, when we had the slide on the rules before Lance, so we were looking at the cables and we talked about the testing, um, you, and you said it cannot easily be... What was it? It's, it should, yeah, in, a skill in which it is easily acquired and applied, the testing. Um, somebody talked about EICRs. There we go. Andy says, easily applied and acquired. Uh, one hour EICRs prove this. So um, I guess that's suggesting that we, if we were to take the idea of thinking of testing as too easy, we would clearly end up with what we've got with one hour ICRs right now so yeah um i think it's also worth noting as well that we're talking about prosumerism now and, and i think john will agree with me here when you go through these next editions you will find the idea of battery storage appears very very quickly within yeah, a very I mean, short period of time yeah it's not a new thing at all it's been there basically forever it's a new thing now and people think it is but of course in reality it's not it's uh Unfortunately, it was there originally, then it went away as things like the National Grid came along. And now we're going mm. back to it because, of course, we know that the grid isn't going to be suitable for everything that we need. Mm -hmm. It makes more, makes more sense to have, if you're generating energy locally, it makes a lot more sense to store it locally and use it than it does to shove it back into the grid and then buy it back later at a higher price. So, yeah. Um, Tom McNulty says, How did they control this frequency? So, obviously, we had this mention of six, was it? What's the uh, 60, was it? Yeah, that was a voltage. voltage. Yeah, I mean, if, if you had your own dynamo in your house, you didn't. It yeah. just ran at whatever speed it ran at. But then yeah. it, didn't, it didn't really matter because <clears throat> basically you were only powering lighting anyway. So it really didn't make a lot of difference what the frequency was. And, of yeah. course, you didn't have to synchronise up with anyone else's house because you weren't connected to it. So oh, it yeah, that's right. So individual... The chief indicator would be, does the bulb light up? Yeah. You may not get a constant, constant light output, but... You can, hey, when you're rich and posh, as long I'm as it's you light. Could, being a dynamo, you could probably just rank up the actual thing to the output of the voltage that you desire. Um, but there must be some kind of limiter on it so it doesn't go over those well, voltages. As you can see, it says a couple of times, testing, inspection, 
You know, when you're yeah. commissioning and bringing this system into use, and let's put it on this, if you were in 1882 and you paid an electrical contractor to come in and fit you a dynamo and all the wires, mm. you'd want to see the lights on and you want to see them working. And that would be down to the electrician um, to ensure that that does work before he leaves the door. I wonder what kind of ver- variation of tolerance of frequencies those old incandescents had. Because, you know, you, you see where they go dim and then they go bright. I wonder what kind of tolerances they had for frequency. Mm. Mm. Probably quite a bit. Probably quite a one. Yeah, I would suggest so. Um, is there any other questions or thoughts or feelings? Stevens uh, added here, uh, for Rule 20, the voltages used came from the Consortium of Fire Insurance Companies. Main drive yes. of the first seven editions of the rules was to primarily satisfy the fire insurance sector. Yeah, they there is in future editions, as you can see, the members of the committee is quite short in the first edition. But if you yeah. go into the next editions and the next editions, you will see masses of insurance companies. And I think it's fair to say, John, virtually every single one on the planet and anyone who's got anything to do with fire all had their tuppence worth. Yeah, as they go on, it's more and more and more listed in there until you end up with, so like I say, pretty much everybody uh, is in there. The main reason for that was originally all these insurance companies had their own rules originally, mm. which of course was hugely confusing because depending on who insured the property, the rules to put stuff in could be totally different. And then eventually they all started consolidating together until eventually you got like, yeah, we're going to have one set of rules for everybody rather than every company has their own individual set and basically confuses everybody. It's fair play to say as well, the Americans, when you, when you read some of these papers, the Americans took this and they adapted and adopted and improvised and tailored it to their needs. And some of the old books I've got are on American electrical installations, John. And I think it's fair to say they went full on. I mean, they literally went full on with electrical installations. Some of the books that have been published for America, state by state, nationally, are off the charts with some of the stuff that are in their books and the information. And so America, uh, you know, they they took this to heart because the original society before it was the IEE, the original society was about consolidation, talking you know, about different electrical experiments in Mexico or Chile or Africa or Norway or whatever, you know, and telegraph cables under the sea and all that sort of experimentation that went on. This is where people spoke about their experiences and shared their knowledge. And that transferred across to the States as well, which we could be here for hours talking about the impact of the regs in America and how they went off on their journey. But we thought we'd just try and keep this first one lean just to the first edition and the Mm -hmm. footsteps that we went on. Um, The one thing I did forget to say, and I apologize for it, is the the Electrical Lighting Clauses Act, um, which was a law. And then obviously this first wiring rules came out in the same year. That Electrical Lighting Clauses Act went on to eventually become the Electricity Supply Regulations, which then went on to become ESQCR. So electrical supply quality continuity rigs that we have now. So there is quite a a linear look back at some of this um, legislation. And it's all, again, freely available to download. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Any other questions? Or is this going to be the uh, shortest one ever? This is nice and short. Um, Dex says, can we have follow-up webinars, key changes by edition? So we'll, uh, yes. We'll, yes, get writing them, Dex. <laughs> yes we um we've obviously we've got all the additions looking through one per we have to identify what the key changes were but we'll do something that shows the key shifts or the key the sheer, uh the, the the actual main key gear changes in the way that we um just evolve 
the way we're doing things yeah. today. But when you when you look at this, when you look at this original standard, there's such a little bit of information here, but the actual um, the intent and the actual outcome is fairly obvious. And when you end up reading seven six seven one, and you end up getting in that minefield of understanding one regulation from the next, and this is like I do on the eighteenth editions. I always try to go through a bit of technical, but then I always try to come back out of the book and generalize and summarize what this book is trying to do. I and mean, this is why, Paul, you'll always reference chapter 13 because the fundamental principles, because if we haven't hit that, then it's flopped. And one of the good things about re- going back and reading this is it allows us to just understand in the simplest term what the outcome was. So when we go back to the regulations that we have today, we need to also carry this on. Uh, sorry, hang on. Oh, I'm in a thing. So we, we can also carry this on and we can generalize it, simplify it. And the more we do that, the more we can use the regulations today by keeping it simple. Yeah, I think we've lost some of that. Um, to answer your question, Dex, uh, <laughs> yes. But let's get on to it. Before we end this, should we talk about webinars? Um, yeah. So we've got another one in two weeks. And it's um, it's chapter 13 versus electricity of work regs. Now, in theory, it's not long. It's probably two hours. However, it, I'm genuinely thinking we might want to split it up over two days. So I'd like to ask the consensus of everyone. Do you want to do this over two nights um, rather than doing one mega three odd hour one? Because this one's going to be really interactive because we're going to go through all 53 or 54 regs in chapter 13 and then debate where they fit into the electricity at work regs. Because mm. as Dave said, this is how I learned it. And this is why I keep going back to it. <clears throat> it's, so it's probably a good idea. Audience. I think two nights. Uh, uh, Lawrence says split. Terry says split. Dave says split. And says split. Tom right. says split. So Dave says split. Plus says split. split, split. I, get the, I, I get Yeah, I think I agree. Because we'll get to I'll a point where it. we're two, two and a half, three hours in. And we're not even like getting through the point and we may end up getting to the point if we try and do it in one hit where we're going to have to just cut things off and rush things and that's a waste yeah. waste opportunity to properly get that message across of of challenging 7671 to uh, to the eawr okay well what we'll do is um we'll keep the we'll keep the schedule for two weeks time for the first part and we'll see yeah. where we get to and then we'll resume maybe a week later or so well i was thinking it might be easier for everyone if we did it over two nights just one after the other well, I'll possible. have to look. I'll have to look what I'm doing the next night. Oh, we'll just do it without you. No, I'm oh, we can't do it without you. We can't do it without you. Don't be silly. Um, so we have other webinars planned. Okay, um, I will. I will. I will. Uh, will. I will look at my calendar. And tonight we will look at the second date and we'll put it on the website to open for registration. Cool. Great. We'll um, so we have other ones planned. We have the Irish regs versus the UK regs, which is going to yes. be hysterical. Um, that yes. is not going to be a two nighter. No. There is lots of changes. We have other stuff that we're still researching. Yes, we have. Um, if you want to ask us questions about EV, we're still researching. If you want to ask us questions about RCDs, we're still researching. Uh, we don't rush answers out because there's a lot to 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 learn and to get out of there. Um, even yeah, even prosumerism. Even battery storage, we've got you know a couple of experts we want to try to to um, challenge their brains on, and we, we learn a lot just just as much, and then we put together some stuff, and then we share it 
as a group. Um, it might take a bit of time, but we, we, we you know, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not trying to rush all these out. Um, Lawrence says, "Where can I get hold of edition one, please?" Can't say. <laughs> you can either spend your rest of your life searching for it in old bookshops and probably pay a billion pounds for it. Um, it was reprinted in a book, and I can't remember the name of the book, but it wasn't. It was about. 15, 20 years ago, I think. So what's on the screen now was actually reprinted in a book, which the IT did actually publish. So mm -hmm. if you can find that book, then it's in there. And they actually put a couple of the other editions in it as well as a sort of assembled sort of reprint of several Ooh. of the old ones. So yeah. it just did to exist. Answer, just to answer, Lawrence, I have suggested to the IT that they republish in a book editions 1 to 5, 6 to 10, 11 to 15 as historical documents for Sparks or make it available as part of the IET Gold subscription, I think people would buy it because it's still very relevant. And also, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an example here. There was, um, I think I mentioned this when we were talking the other day, but and I can't name names or anything like that, but there was an example uh, where there was a, a court case of an electrician and there was an incident where he was, the electrician was being prosecuted for a, an accident, a shock. And um, the electricians was debating the quality and technical compliance of the work. And a comment was made about the age of the installation. And he said that fuses weren't a requirement until much later in the regs. And the first edition was quoted to a judge in a court of law as requiring fuses. This electrician looked and felt very, very stupid. And that is about all I can say about that case. So just be wary of this sort of stuff. A lot of people dismiss this as rubbish. It's not. This is a book or a document that was published, which if you try and say, oh, I, 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 we don't need to worry about you know, RCDs. They, they weren't in an early edition of Reg. Really? They've been in it for, fucking, they've been around for 20, 30 odd years. So you can't say that. Um, even AFDDs, when they came out, everyone was surprised, but they were referenced mm. in the, the, the 17th edition. Indeed. And it's important to remember that when we do introduce new technologies, even like these old VOE LCBs, everything else adjusts to incorporate new technologies. And if we decide to disregard one thing, everything else has also been adjusted to accommodate that thing. Um, we've got this potential in Amendment 2 where we might not we might look at getting rid of protective conductor currents because we're going to start, you know, all, all the, the regulations about them because they what they work at 10 milliamps, where we may have to achieve nine million amps every circuit so one thing changes another and so we can't just pick out which ones we want to pick out and ignore and this is the this is one of the problems we're finding so one of the reasons why we're being probably a little bit secretive is when we do this we do get lots of comments and engagement some of them negative some positive but we have to be very careful as to the level and extent of research we're doing so i'll give you a heads up we are writing to every single one of the manufacturers we can write to asking the same set of questions. Once we have that and we discuss it in our podcast webinars, we will make that available on a spreadsheet to people. Um, but we are researching stuff. I think it's fair to say with the more complexity of the technology and the demands of energy and government and manufacturers, there is something missing. And this is what mm. we're trying to research so that and we can have that debate. It's important to add that not every manufacturer gives us the same response. Yes, they tell us to, some of them very politely put some mm. fingers in the air at us, but that's also fine. Yeah. Even even their approaches are slightly different, which means we have to then compare. You can only make assumptions based on the facts, but um, 
we do have stuff. Hopefully, we'll have some interesting stuff um, for you. Some of this we've oh, never really oh, spoken about in this level of detail either. Yeah. So. And if you watch the previous webinars where we covered earth human bonding and stuff, we threw in some other little things, diverted neutral currents, phenolic degradation, and all this stuff. All this stuff we're going to talk about more probably in December time. Yeah, sorry, it's, it's not as many as before, but we it takes ages to try and work full-time and do all this. No. And anybody from Discord who knows... We are always constantly researching every weekend and most evenings, so we'll get around to it. And by the way, the guys don't want to do a podcast and hot tub, I asked, so <laughs> that's off the table. All right, I'm going to just scan through this. Is there any other little questions I've missed? That there I... is one. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's one that someone said, um, could someone still find a dwelling wide to this regulation as old as this? I'm going to say no Ooh, to this. Oof. Only if it's been like lost in time in a forest. Yeah. Well, I think sometimes you will find installations where the original wiring is just left cut and then left i think sean brought some cable to my house the other day with some of these joints on it that he removed from an old um, an old house i've seen installations where i've gone in done wiring and i've seen the previous wiring and the previous wiring because the sparks would just cut it and leave it under the bloody floors yeah. mm. there are probably a big manor houses where there's like a wing or an area that's been cut off or ignored or abandoned where one day an electrician will just you know come upon it and open it up and and find you know this 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 uh this marvel in front of them, which is actually to this old standard. Um, but yeah, rare. Yeah, very well. The second edition came out only six years later, so it's a very narrow window of opportunity. <laughs> very narrow window. Still exist. If you do, hopefully there'll be a copy of the regs next to it. That, then then you'll be lucky. Indeed. Uh, and and is there anything else, Dave, or is that it? Can we thank everybody for coming and let them enjoy their evenings? I think I think we're done. I think everyone, thank you for coming in. The as we did with our third, it's one of the reasons we liked these webinars is the in, the extra interaction we get live uh, with you guys. Obviously, you know, we're going to put this up on YouTube. People on YouTube, you can add comments and you can ask questions. We will get back to them. Um, but it's so nice having some of you guys add your opinions and your responses. Uh, as we go so yeah i do enjoy doing these um yeah no i'm i hey everyone um thank you for coming in thank you and thank you paul uh this i'll just say this uh presentation was thrown together by mr meenan you can probably tell by the dynamo joke um it was uh thrown in you you actually had this one ready a long time ago this was done this was Ooh, this has been done for about nine months, this one. Yeah, this one has. But, so so we are ready to go. We are working on others, but we decided not to start doing webinars until we were in that we working flow. Yeah, yeah. I, I am not. Sorry, guys. Just to, I'm not going to rush any of these. Yeah. They've got to be ready. And I we did that with the last ones when we did the coding. They were very rushed, and it was very stressful, and I don't want to do that anymore. So these are slightly different with more quality of research, so they'll they'll come as and when. Yeah, but uh, yeah, uh, thank you everyone for coming in. Um, Tom, thank you for the podcast. Very interesting, informative. Dave uh, says, Bristol is the only place I found working old cables in wooden drunking about 10 years ago. Tom says, Buckingham Palace. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thank, thank you, everybody. Difference. All right, everyone's just saying thank you. Awesome, guys. Thank you for coming in. Uh, our next one is two weeks. Two weeks. Uh, it's, it's on the, but it's on the website and you can register for it now um, and I'll also later tonight put up the second half of it we will do a little adjustment I'll make up at that one up later tonight as well um, otherwise you know if we if we see you in, a, in a, the discord or any other social media say hello say hello on YouTube um, you know let us know what you think let us know if you'd like us to consider any other subjects we'll put you know our time is limited 
but if things are interesting enough it's inherently in, you know in our in our nature to find you know find stuff out and, and dig into these um i'll hand over to john and paul to say goodbye paul's actually in, in charge of the kill switch tonight so I'm just still trying to find the kill switch. <laughs> it's, uh, just one last thing. Someone did ask um, how much it cost, the uh, first edition. It wasn't actually priced. Um, the second edition wasn't priced either. Uh, the first one had a price was actually the third, which was sixpence. Sixpence. Which was in 1897. Which was quite a lot, actually, in 1897. It wasn't sort of just throwaway money. It was. Let's, a, let's not start a debate on the cost. Moderate of stuff. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So sixpence, and the others didn't have a price, but uh, probably wasn't going to be too far out. Inflation wasn't particularly high in those days. So, mm. uh, And hopefully we'll get this on YouTube this week, yeah. possibly. Okay, Cheers, guys. Peace, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Switch. This off. I think you've just done it, really. Have I? Yeah. Well, we're still here, but... I don't know. Are we still broadcasting? Probably. Oh shit. Um, I need to learn these more softwares more. Okay, got it. Right. Bye, everyone. <laughs>